Please join me as I pray and get to get into the text. Father, we're so grateful for today and this morning and uh, our worship so far. Thank you, God. We do pray that uh, it has been pleasing and honoring to you. And as always, God, we want to ask that your word will accomplish its purpose for which you sent it out as it is preached this morning. Let it land on prepared soil, hearts that are humbled and receptive and eager to learn. And uh, through this time, may you be the one who is glorified and praised. So thank you so much, God, for everyone that you've brought to our church this morning and everyone who's listening online. And we lift this time up to you now once again in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 8 is where we're at. So if you would open your Bibles and turn there with me. Genesis 8 in our continuing series of God's story of beginnings. And we are in catastrophe part five. And this is the calm after the storm, uh, as I've entitled it. And we know that Noah has been on the ark for a long time now. And he's endured some scary times of testing through all those days uh, with his family. Turbulence, tumult, in this most extreme of storms. Talk about climate change. It was radical, extreme, nasty, destructive. And so what do you think that Noah felt through all those days and nights and weeks and months floating in that water, on that water, stuck in this wooden vessel? What was he thinking? Maybe, maybe... Has God forgotten about me? The impression is that God hasn't spoken to Noah throughout this whole time. If you read the text, um, it doesn't say that he's spoken to Noah throughout this whole time during the flood. And so it would be understandable if Noah maybe started to have some doubts and feel some fear. And perhaps some of you feel that way this morning. Maybe you're in a trial that's lasted a long time and you're tempted to think that maybe God has forgotten you. Maybe he's taken an early Thanksgiving break and has just neglected you and your problems. You might feel that God has abandoned you. You prayed. It doesn't seem like he answered. You read the Bible. It doesn't speak to you. Our passage this morning, I hope, will give us assurance that God, in fact, has not forgotten about you. Far from it, God remembers his people. He remembers us. And we, as his people, are called to remember him. And so our text is Genesis 8, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read it in just a moment. But you have in your bulletin there um, some information, and it includes... Our theme for today, our theme for this text, this passage in Genesis 8, and it is, as God faithfully keeps his word to rescue, his people respond in steadfast faith. As God faithfully keeps his word to rescue, his people respond in steadfast faith. So keep that theme in mind as I read the passage, and um, hopefully you'll see that even as we kind of... um, do our our reading here. So if you're able to stand with me, we like to 
respect God's word and stand as it's being read. So our passage today is Genesis 8, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark. And looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Please be seated. Once again, our theme is that as God faithfully remembers his word to rescue, faithfully keeps his word to rescue, his people respond in steadfast faith. So we have two main points to our sermon today. The first one is, in verses 1 through 5, God's faithful remembrance. God's faithful remembrance. This is the dominant point of the passage. And the second point, uh, we're going to be able to apply um, some things, as we see, via illustration of what Noah does. But the first point, once again, is God's faithful remembrance. And we have kind of two overlapping things that we want to highlight uh, from this first point. And the first one is, is from that very first part of verse 1 in chapter 8. God remembers. God remembers. He keeps his word. Okay, and so that overlaps with the fact that God moves. Okay, and so God remembers. God moves. This is part of our understanding of God's faithful remembrance. It says, but God remembered Noah. I mentioned last Sunday that this does not mean that God forgot about Noah. Um, hopefully it's obvious to us that 
God wasn't experiencing a senior moment here. Rather than denoting, though, just a, a matter of recall or retention, the Hebrew word, which is zakar, it often carries that additional sense of acting in accordance with what is remembered, acting, moving. Okay, Genesis 19, verse 29, uh, God remembers Abraham and so delivers his nephew Lot from the judgment that was about to come down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19:29. Genesis 30, verse 22, God remembers Rachel, and he gives her a baby, right, Joseph. In Jeremiah 14, verse 10, when God remembers sin, it is to take action to punish sin, Jeremiah 14, 10. So God did not, He does not forget his promises, as we've been seeing the last few weeks. Here again, we see God remembering Noah. That is, God is being faithful to keep his word to Noah, to rescue him, his family, all the animals, while every other living being was completely annihilated from the face of the earth. This word, Zakar again, shows us how precious Noah and his cargo were to God. Elohim God had his eye on them the entire time. He didn't forget. And now he's acting upon his remembrance of them. He's proving himself faithful by his actions. Okay, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, Boyce, he has a good quote here. He says, it is God's nature to remember. He is faithful. To be sure, this is the first time in the Bible where we are told that God remembered something. But this was not the last time. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. God remembered Rachel, Isaac's wife, and she conceived, as I already mentioned. But Psalm 9, verse 12 tells us that God remembers the afflicted, the suffering. Many times God is said to remember his covenant or his promises, Psalm 136, verse 23, the psalmist writes that he remembered us in our low estate, end quote. God's remembrance is deliberate, it is purposeful, and it is active. He takes action upon his faithful remembrance. He remembers and he moves. And in this case, what does God do? What is his action? Okay, the second part of Verse 1, it says, And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And God moves. In this case, he removes. Right? He's removing the waters of the flood. He caused a wind to pass over the earth. The ruler of all nature, by his powerful hand, brings this supernatural wind to pass. And the water begins to subside. Okay, out of the chaos and destruction and death that was this global flood, God begins the process of bringing order and life and promise of hope ahead. He drives those flood waters back with a wind. And actually the Hebrew word there is ruach. Ruach. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 14 verse 21. It's the parting of the Red Sea. Another miraculous wind. It says in that verse, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord 
swept the sea back by a strong east wind, ruach, all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. Exodus 14:21. This word for wind is also the same one used in Genesis 1, verse 2. And so that, that, that word can mean wind or breath or spirit. And depending on context, it could even mean Holy Spirit. And that's what it means in Genesis 1, verse 2, as the Spirit of God is hovering over the deeps, over the waters of the earth. Here, though, in Genesis 8, after the flood, it's like an echo of that time of creation. The Spirit at creation brought order out of disorder, bringing a, a new world, right, a new creation into shape. This wind in, in Genesis 8, now that God causes uh, to come, it starts to reorder, reset his creation after that epic destruction of the flood. So it must have been a, an incredibly powerful wind and yet very controlled. Okay? God causes these floodwaters to gradually subside. I love the detail and the, the different words used in this passage in verses 2 through 7. There's actually five different words to describe the waters calming down. You might have noticed that when I, when I read it before. It says it closed, restrained, or stopped. The waters receded steadily. The water decreased. And lastly, the water decreased steadily or abated. You can almost see God's restraining hand sweeping over the earth and calming the waters down, putting them in their place. The waters of the flood were being drained and guided from the continental interior land to the shores and into the deepening ocean basins, forming different bodies of water. Okay, Me, myself, I'm certainly no geologist or meteorologist even though I took meteorology in college years, years ago. But it seems to me that this would have taken quite some time. Surely the wind that God sent aided in the movement of the water, and it seems like it would have been a, a prolonged wind in order to help evaporate and dry out the, the fully saturated soil and the surface of the earth. The text tells us some of those time markers of this calming after the storm when God begins to remove the waters, isn't it remarkable how specific God is in revealing this information to us? Verse 3, it says that over a span of 150 days, the waters were receding steadily and decreasing. Then verse 4 details that it was the seventh month. On the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And you remember, if you look back for a moment at Chapter 7, verse 11. It's my new 7-11 passage. Okay? But that was flood day. Flood day was Genesis 7, verse 11. It was the second month, the 17th day. Okay? So when did the ark rest on the mountains of Ararat? The seventh month, 17th day. In other words, exactly five months to the day after the flood started. And the eagle has landed. The eagle being the ark. Right. So verse five says that the water kept gradually decreasing until the 10th month. And on the first day of that 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Okay. So now we're at about seven and a half months after flood day. 
The ark has landed on the mountains of Ararat. And by this time, from that mountainous region, which is like 17,000 feet high, the tops of the other mountains were able to be seen okay, or in that mountain range. So the water is steadily decreasing, right? Side question, where is the ark today? Yeah, that's easy. It's in Williamstown, Kentucky. <laughs> no, no, actually, that would be the ark encounter, which uh, Answers in Genesis built uh, a few years ago. Um, and that's about 45 miles away from the Creation Museum, which is in Petersburg, Kentucky. But um, there actually have been numerous uh, claimed discoveries of Noah's Ark in recent years. Uh, some of you may have heard about those things. Um, by the way, the mountains of Ararat are located in modern-day eastern Turkey and Armenia. And so it's hard to know if those claims are legitimate or not. Uh, I don't actually spend a whole lot of time trying to figure that out. Um, all I know is that after 4,500 years at least, and maybe more, it's likely that a wooden structure like this would have long decomposed and decayed uh, where there wouldn't be any notable remains. Um, it's possible that the ark no longer exists because maybe Noah and his family were taking it apart to, to use the wood for various and numerous uh, different needs. But who knows? Okay. Um, by the way, it's more than likely, too, that uh, the Garden of Eden uh, was probably destroyed in the flood as well, if in any case uh, any of you were wondering about that. But what we do know for sure is that God was and is faithful. Okay? He knows his people. He remembers his promises to you and I. And this water-draining, water-evaporating process, it took a lot of time, many months to complete. And so we're going to get to Noah in a minute again, how he must have been feeling through all this. Okay, Probably times of doubt and fear, but all of this was in God's good timing by his faithful remembrance and action. Uh, a man once came to the evangelist, D.L. Moody, and the man told him that he was worried because he didn't feel like he was saved. And Moody asked him, well, was Noah safe in the ark? And certainly he was, the man replied. And Moody responded by saying, well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? So the man got the point. Uh, it's not our feelings that save us. It's Jesus who saves us by his sovereign grace. And if we have trusted in him, we know that God in faithful remembrance will continue to save and preserve and sanctify us. He will continue to keep us from judgment. Knowing God's character, we don't trust ourselves, but we trust in him completely. God moves and acts in the context of our helplessness, okay? human helplessness. He is the one at work when we can do nothing to save ourselves. He causes the wind to come and move and blow, just like Jesus says in John 3, verse 8, right? And he takes care to remember his people always. He will always keep his commitments to his covenant people, to the praise of his glorious grace. I hope that's an amen for us all this morning. God remembers, God moves. So what is God's faithful people's response? Okay, back to Genesis 8, who was 
the only man on earth who was righteous. Hey, Noah, um, the faithful's righteous response is our second point today. And um, these verses in, in chapter 8, verses 4 through 14, illustrate for us three ways that the faithful respond. And I love that word faithful because it reminds me of our church, Faith Bible Church. And so let us be encouraged by what we see here in the text. Um, so the first way is that faith patiently rests in God's promises. And if you're taking notes, uh, that's uh, something you want to note. Faith patiently rests in God's promises. We see this in verses 4 and 5. I asked before, how do you think Noah felt through all this time in the ark? Maybe God has forgotten about him. Maybe, probably Noah had times of doubting, of feeling that God has abandoned him. And once again, I asked some of you this morning, do you ever feel that way about God? In times of trouble or trial or sorrow or sadness? Hey, holidays can be a, a difficult time for many people. Maybe you're spiritually struggling, even sometimes wondering about the assurance of your salvation. But like we already mentioned in verses 4 and 5, um, going back to verse 4 for a moment, uh, this was several months now that Noah and his family are in that ark. Okay, so over a month, 40 days, right, of pounding rain, pulsating groundwater, 110 more days of receding waters and changing environment, followed by days upon days upon days of waiting and waiting as the ark rests on that mountain range. And as the ark was resting, so did Noah patiently rest on God's promise to him. Certainly this was a, a trying time. And Noah's, Noah must have been a patient man. Patience was required. Um, again, the text uh, doesn't mention God speaking to Noah throughout all of these months. He didn't say anything to Noah, uh, according to our passage, until verse 15. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark. This was uh, over a year after flood day. So um, it's interesting to observe that that Hebrew word, rest, uh, in verse 4, is nuah. Nuah, what, what, what does that sound like? Sounds like Noah, right? Um, it's reminiscent of Noah's naming back in chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, remember what... Noah's father Lamech said in giving Noah his name, he said, this one will give us rest from our work and from the ground which the Lord cursed. And we understand that Noah himself was not the one who would give ultimate rest from the ultimate curse of sin and death. But God was faithful, faithful remembrance, right? Faithful to rescue him and to preserve the line of the promised seed who would eventually crush Satan and bring ultimate salvation to all who believe. And then ultimate rest is found only by trusting in the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone that we have eternal rest. And that's the big picture. That's the meta narrative of what's going on here in Genesis chapter eight. And yet, and yet there's implications and applications for us. 
we can and should apply the timeless truths we see here and the principles we find about God's faithfulness and our response. And what we're trying to bring out here is, is patience. Patience. We're called to learn patience. Continuing to trust all of God's promises to us. Many of us might confess to, to being impatient, whether it's sitting in traffic or waiting in line at the grocery store or being on hold with uh, customer service, or waiting for your turn to speak in conversation with someone who's talking and talking and talking and talking. Okay, we want things fast. We have fast food. We have the microwave. We want faster Wi-Fi, faster Internet, faster everything. Sometimes we ask God for even good things, maybe like a spouse or career direction or the salvation of our family members. We can be tempted towards impatience. Okay, what is impatience? Okay, basically, it's demanding things on our time. Demanding that things happen on our timing. Sometimes even asking God for spiritual growth, like patience itself. Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. Right? So in those times... I want us to remember the big picture of God's salvation that he graced us with and the day-to-day. God takes care of his children. How insulting it is when you think about it, that the Father, our Father in heaven, will neglect his chosen and adopted sons and daughters. And so I encourage you with these verses from Psalm 103, which some of us know very well. But Psalm 103, a psalm of David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. For example, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Who heals your diseases? Maybe not, maybe not now. Certainly not now, because we're all going to die. But in eternity, yes, he will and he does. Precious truths from Psalm 103. Someone once said, when troubles come, they advance quickly, but retreat slowly. Um, kind of a, picture we see from the flood and then the waters steadily receding. Let us patiently rest in God's promises for this life and the next. He's faithful to preserve his people. And that that word, bless the Lord, O my soul, it means praise him. Praise the Lord, O my soul, for already providing the remedy for all of our ills and ailments in his son his precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins. Now, lest you think that being patient means just sitting there and passively waiting for things to change in your life, the second way the righteous respond is our next next thing here. Faith actively waits on God. Faith actively waits on God, and I believe we see this in verses 6 through 12, because the narrative shifts in verse 6 quite a bit from God's actions 
to Noah's actions. In verse 1 says, God remembers and God caused that wind, right? God remembers, God moves. And then all of a sudden, in verse 6, it shifts to Noah. Noah is now the actor. Um, verse 6 and the rest of the passage, Noah opened the window of the ark. He sent out a raven. He sent out a dove. Then Noah removed. Then Noah looked. Okay, All these action verbs here. Now Noah is the one doing it. And the other repeated verb in verses 6 through 12 is waited. Noah waited. So putting those things together, faith actively rests. Faith actively waits on the Lord. This one righteous man on earth, he's not just sitting back, twiddling his thumbs, passively waiting for something to change, something to happen. No, he's waiting on God in faith. Okay, waiting on God in faith also entails taking action. When did Noah open that window of the ark that he made? It was almost nine full months after flood day. Again, long, long time. It's the length of a, a full-term pregnancy. And it's the length of a full academic school year, which for some of our students is almost interminable. Okay? He finally gets to crack open a window or opening of the ark after that long time. Much patience required, much prayer required. But now it's time to act. And by the way, the, the text doesn't say much else about what this window was at all. Okay, where it was on the ark, how big or how small, when Noah made it, and it doesn't matter really, uh, though it seems pretty sure to be on the smaller side, okay, given the violence of the, the flood storm, probably not able to see very much, uh, if at all, of what's going on outside. But it was big enough, apparently, to send out a couple birds, a raven and a dove. The first was a raven, which describes in the verse, it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Okay, there's actually very little detail given about the raven as compared with the dove. But we can assume that the raven was released for the same reason as the dove later, to try and find out how much the floodwaters have retreated. The raven is a, a stronger bird, and it's a consumer of carrion, remains of decaying flesh, so this bird could remain in flight longer, going here and there while eating food from floating dead carcasses. The Hebrew phrasing of that verb indicates that this raven flew back and forth repeatedly. It seems that this was either over a span of seven days or for a number of months, it says there, until the earth was dried up. So either way, uh, it was doing it throughout this time, it eventually had to return at some point. Why is that? Because as an unclean bird, there would have been only two of them, male and female. God told Noah, just take two of the unclean kind, right? So since we still have ravens today, uh, it means that they survived the flood and reproduced after. And so somehow the raven that went out needed to get back with its mate and um, replenish, reproduce after. So verses 8 and 9 to further test where the flood waters were, verse 8 says that Noah sends out a dove next. This would be a, a weaker bird. It can't fly too long without needing to land and rest somewhere. And that's exactly what happens. Noah releases the dove 
She flies around, flies around for a while, doesn't find anywhere nearby to land. So Noah sticks his hand out the window and brings her back into the ark. Kyle and Dalich, um, commentators, they say, the raven in seeking food settles upon every carcass it sees, whereas the dove will only settle on what is dry and clean. So doves, which were light, clean animals, according to Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 12, uh, in contrast to a raven, dark, unclean animals, uh, doves return to their home when they find no place to land. So what's a faithful guy to do? Patient, righteous Noah. Waiting on the Lord, he gives it another week, and then gives it another shot. He's exercising patience, and then he takes action again. Verse 10, this time, releasing the dove, finally brings a promising sign in the evening. A freshly plucked olive leaf. As a good little detail there. As a fresh leaf, it was newly born, which was confirmation that the earth was again starting to yield vegetation. Things are starting to grow again on the land. For Noah, this meant that the waters had receded for sure, and it would have been an exciting moment, to say the least, to see that dove coming back uh, with an olive branch, olive leaf in its beak. And so what does he do after this? Well, he actually waits yet another seven days, another week. And he sends out the dove, and this time she does not return. There must be land nearby for her to rest upon. The earth was now inhabitable for her again. So by way of description, once again, illustration of this faithful, righteous man, Noah, it illustrates for us that there's action taken as one is waiting on God. Faith doesn't passively sit around, does not merely let things happen all the time. There's action to be taken as we wait on the Lord's timing for things. Okay, so this is all part of cultivating real patience and trusting God. Lastly, the third way the righteous respond, and we're responding to God's wonderful, faithful remembrance of us, right? Is that faith assuredly affirms God's will. This is the third way the righteous respond to God. Faith assuredly affirms God's will. Verses 13 and 14. And once again, I just love how exact the dates here that are given uh, for when the water was drying up from the earth. Okay, once again, go back to flood day, 7-11, Genesis 7, verse 11. It was the second month, um, sorry, the 600 year, second month, 17th day. Now, on the 601st year, the first of the month, okay, emphasis on first, which signals newness, a new year, Noah is finally able to take off the covering of the ark. Okay, whatever that top thing was, whatever that covering was, he removed it. And action verbs looked and behold, okay, the excitement of the moment here is palpable. He was able to see the surface of the ground for the first time. After all these months going on a year, Noah is able to look out and see that the surface of the ground is dry. Again, Noah's faith in God is affirmed as his faith, which 
What does Hebrews say faith is? The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? His faith becomes sight. He looks out and he does see. It's dry land. The Lord stayed true to his promise to rescue Noah, his family, all those animals that they brought aboard on the ark. This was God's will being affirmed, and it's all, once again, in God's timing. A careful reading here in verse 14 tells us that Noah had to wait another couple months until God spoke to him, okay, that he could leave the ark. Okay, it didn't happen until the second month on the 27th day of the month. Okay, just the exactness of this is remarkable. And just like when we, I told you, God gives us names of, of people, ancient people in history, this reveals us to us once again the, the historicity of this event. Okay, it's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a tall tale. It's not a allegorical tale to, to teach a moral lesson. No, this is God's revelation to us. It is history, his story, and the exactness of these dates attest to its reality. Verse 14 says, the earth was dry on a particular day. All the floodwaters had found its place into those ocean basins, into streams and rivers and lakes and pools and ponds. It was exactly one year and ten days after the flood first came, 370 days. So, amazing historicity, amazing detailed facts given, which, again, legitimate science will always, always support. And along with that, with that historicity, we do learn implications and timeless principles that we want to apply. In this case, that faith, our faith, our faith in God assuredly affirms his will. As we act in faith, many times our faith is affirmed by what we see God doing in our lives. And just like with Noah, sometimes, oftentimes even, we need to wait a long time until we can see God's working and moving. But we don't see it in the moment a lot of times. But when we look back, we look back, we do see, we do realize, we do understand that God was faithful to us. He was accomplishing things that maybe we didn't expect, maybe we didn't even want, maybe we weren't aware of. Many times in those periods of waiting, God was shaping our character. He was drawing us into greater things, greater Christ-likeness, and greater dependence and trust in Him. God is always working on us, dear people, and we want to remember that. Noah had to wait another two-plus months uh, to leave that ark. Talk about cabin fever. Um, And yet, he waited for the Lord's word, patiently listened for God's instructions. Today, what do we have? We have scripture, right? We have the everlasting word of God to guard us, to guide us, to ascertain his will for our lives. The old hymn goes, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And um, how I've proved 
him o'er and o'er, over and over. Um, so that's in contrast to proving ourselves, right? Proving ourselves, proving in our works, boasting in our works, okay? Proving how I've proved him, proved Jesus means we're boasting in him. We're, we're depending on him to prove himself and show himself to be faithful in our lives and in his working in our hearts and the way that he doesn't need our help. We need his. So I hope that we've seen from our text today, once again, our theme as we wrap it up here. As God faithfully keeps his word to rescue, his people respond in steadfast faith. As our understanding of God's character deepens, our trust in him should grow. And that plays out, dear people, in our everyday behavior, everyday decisions, everyday living and actions. It's not mere abstract theology. It's not just intellectual head games. God's word is real and it's for real life. Second Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is inspired by God and is prof- profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so the flood teaches us again. It gives us a true understanding of what sin is and okay? what sin is and what it's supposed to cost. Ugly as it was and deadly as it was. Can you imagine what Noah and his family members saw when they set foot out of that ark? Right. Um, remaining corpses, carcasses, bones, death. Hard to say exactly what that looked like, but there's never been anything like that. Never, ever of that magnitude of the flood. The suffering and shame was not pretty to look at and to think about, but it's a reminder to us of what sin costs. And when we understand the true cost of sin, that's when we comprehend the true value of redemption and deliverance. The ark of salvation, this huge vessel of made of wood, points us to a, a smaller piece of wood, which is the cross, which the promised seed, the savior of our souls, was hung on. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your faithfulness, your remembrance of us. Thank you, God, for always, always keeping your word that it's impossible for you to lie. Thank you for your commitment to sinners like us, those you've chosen, those you've forgiven, those you've saved. And thank you for the good ways that your word directs us to apply this in our lives today, that how your faithful people respond with patience, with growing steadfastness, with long-suffering, waiting on you and not idly standing by, but taking appropriate action when your word calls for it. Thank you, God, for always fulfilling your promises and especially for your promise and assurance of salvation that everyone who has trusted in Christ personally as their Lord and Savior and repented and put their faith solely in him based on his work, his death, his life, his resurrection, We're grateful that we're promised eternal rest for our souls. Thank you so much, Father, for your great love toward us. 
and that you will never leave us or forsake us. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.